Good morning. This morning we continue in our series of studies in the book of Revelation. You can turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 3 and in verse 7. In chapter 3 and verse 7, we see Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia is a really good church. A church that had a great testimony and was a wonderful example of what a church should be. Now, as we study this today, it's easy to sort of look at this and say, oh, yeah, this is the kind of church I attend. Or this is the kind of person I am. Or this is the kind of ministry I'm involved in. Let's open up our hearts to what the Lord would say to us, because some of the things that are true about this church that we're going to study may not be true of us as a church, or may not be true of us as individuals or ministries. We always need to open our hearts to the Lord's correction, instruction, direction, and even rebuke if necessary, but also to his encouragement. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very encouraging letter in your word. And we ask that as we study it today, we would all be encouraged to serve you with our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, to give our lives to you afresh and anew each day, and to be filled with your spirit, Lord, we pray, that we might do the things you've called us to do, say the things you've called us to say, and be the people you've called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, the church in Philadelphia, we need to start by looking at the city itself. The church was founded by, more than likely founded by Ephesian missionaries after 51 AD. So a relatively young church in that sense, a couple of decades maybe, uh, when this letter is written. But the city was much younger than the cities of the other churches. It was a relatively new city. The city was founded by Greeks as a missionary outpost. And I find it interesting that this city, that this church of Philadelphia was in, was in fact a missionary outpost. A mission, if you will, of Greek culture and language. And the city was often destroyed by earthquakes. Multiple times it was destroyed by earthquakes. It experienced constant tremors. So it was the kind of place we might think of on the West Coast, where you're accustomed to feeling an earthquake or at least a tremor. Now, the city had been renamed a number of times to honor Roman emperors, so the name would change frequently, but it's one of only two of the seven churches of the book of Revelation that actually still exist today, along with Smyrna. Uh, So it's interesting that that would be the case. The church of brotherly love. For you see, the word in Greek means brotherly love. We know that because we're familiar with our city on the eastern seaboard, Philadelphia. It's called the city of brotherly love because Philadelphia means brotherly love. A love that you can have for someone that's not a romantic love or even the love of a family member. It's a brotherly love, a sisterly love, and that is the name of the city that the church was in. Let's take a look at the letter in its entirety, and then we'll go back over it and break it down this morning. In verse 7 of chapter 3 in the book of Revelation, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words, of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have a little strength, 
Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I emphasize that this is a letter to the churches, not just to one church, but it is a letter to a particular church that existed in the first century, the latter part of the first century, in the Middle East, in the area of what is Western Turkey. Now, the city is called Brotherly Love, but the name of the church is appropriate for this church knew something of the love of Christ. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. Notice in verse 7, it says this, it says, These are the words of him who was holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. In that opening, you see that Jesus introduces himself to this church in the letter as the faithful coming Messiah. He is, as it says here, the one who holds the key of David. He has all the authority complete authority and ownership over all of the treasury of God, that is God's blessings. And notice, if, if you check it out on your own this week, you'll notice in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, he's described in the same way. That's significant for it says the words of him who is holy and true. In chapter 19, he's described as him who is holy and true when he returns. You see, the one thing that seems very obvious to me in this letter Jesus says, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. He is the one at the center of this letter, but his communication is surrounded with references to his return. And that says something about the church, because the church was very focused on the return of Jesus Christ. One of the ways you'll know that a church is not only true, but a good, solid church, is they believe in the concept of Maranatha, that the Lord is coming again. Amen? You know, churches for many centuries have started to dismiss that idea of the Lord actually returning to the earth. They've started to look at it symbolically or dismiss it as uh, a a parallel uh, metaphor or an analogy, not an actual literal, literal return of Jesus Christ. But a good church, a true church, a church of brotherly love will know that Christ is coming again. It's what motivates us to be ready and prepared for his return. And that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of this church, that they were very focused on the Lord's return. And so the Lord introduces himself in that way. Now, one of the things, and I'll mention many of these things along the way, one of the things I want you to be aware of is the language. The language is chosen for a reason. And Jesus chose the language in these letters for a particular church, from a particular source. And in this particular letter, 
he quotes from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22. And I'm going to read it for you, and I think you'll recognize right away the language that Jesus uses. In chapter 22, verse 20, We read this, in that day, now this is Isaiah speaking, but he's speaking about something having to do with ancient Israel. He says, in that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. And he will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. See, what's happening here is Isaiah is declaring a prophecy. It's actually the Lord speaking through him. And it's a prophecy about Jerusalem, which is interesting because when the Lord returns, he returns to Jerusalem. But he says this in verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. Now he's speaking of an actual person uh, in, in the past, but he says this, I will place on him, on his shoulder, the key to the house of David. And that sounds familiar. And watch this, what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. Then he goes on to say this, I will drive him like a peg into a firm place and he will be a seat of honor for the house of his God or house of his father. And it talks about a man who is going to be given authority over the treasury house of God. Now, why is that important? Well, we're not talking about that man that we discussed in that scripture, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, but the language is the same for a reason. Because in fact, what God, what Jesus is saying to this church is that he is the one that has the key of David. He is the one that has access to the treasury of God, the blessings of God. And he is the one that has the authority to shut that door and no one can open it or open it and no one can shut it. So you see, the language was used because it was familiar to the Jews, but it was used for a reason to convey a thought to them that he does have complete authority and ownership over the treasury of God. Amen? And we love that phrase because Jesus opens not only doors, but opportunity, doors of opportunity for us. And when he opens up a door, no one can shut it. But if he shuts a door, no one can open it. Now, there are lots of people in the world trying to shut the doors that God has opened. And they'll never succeed. The gates of hell can't prevail against us or the church or the things that God is doing. Amen? Know that. But there are lots of Christians trying to open doors that God has shut. And we also learn that no one can open them. So don't find yourself in the position of trying to shut a door God has opened or open a a door that God has shut. Many people spin their wheels trying to do things that God hasn't called them to do. And one of the ways you'll know that that God has not called you to do something is no matter what you try, you can't open the door. It is just that simple. Yesterday, when we were outside in the parking lot, uh, Marty and Vicki McGee, they were good enough to bring some of the, the sports cars that Marty has. He's a car collector, and he brought a few of the cars, and the kids were taking pictures, and it was very exciting. And, but there was one Corvette, beautiful cars, by the way, uh, that the door just wouldn't open. And we were trying to get the door open so the kids could just sit in there. <clears throat> We finally did get the door open, and I realized why the door should have stayed shut. Right, Vicky? Some of the kids went hog wild inside of that vet. I hope, I, I prayed last night, Marty, that nothing got broken. Sometimes we try to force a door open, and then we realize afterwards, if we do get lucky enough to get a door open, oh, boy, we shouldn't have opened that door. 
But with God, you'll never open up a door that he has shut. There are many pastors that try to plant churches that God hasn't called them to plant, or ministries that are trying to continue that God is not in, and it just doesn't work. Why? Because God has shut the door. Yeah, but he should open it. It doesn't matter what you and I think. God shuts doors as well. But notice it's him, it's Jesus who has the authority to open and shut doors. And when you understand that about ministry, you understand you need to get with Jesus's program if you're going to see any fruit in ministry. And by the way, you can't bring a blessing unless God gives you the blessing to bring. So as we look at that word that he gives there, it's not just some archaic language. He holds the key of David because he's the son of David. He has the the right as heir to the throne of David. He has the right to open the treasury of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy to the treasury of God in the temple or in the area of Jerusalem during the time of David. But it means so much more for us because he says what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Just understand he has the authority to bless and to withhold blessing. Now we understand that, but then he goes on to commend this church. In verse 8. I know your deeds. That is, I know the things you do. And see, I have placed before you an open door. You see, that's why he used the language, because he goes on to say, I have the authority to open doors, and I've opened a door for you. God will always open doors of ministry to churches that are the kinds of churches that he's called them to be. When you're following Jesus, when you're serving Jesus with all your heart as a group of people, a church family, God is going to open up doors. He may not open up every door, but he will open a door of ministry for you because God is in it and he has the authority to do so. He says, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And then he says this. It's very interesting. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And what we learn from this here is they were faithful in their work for the Lord. They did the things that God had called them to do. And they made the most of the opportunities, the open doors, that God provided for them. Now, there are churches with a lot of resources. Big, large churches with lots of influence. Very powerful, strong churches. And then there are smaller churches that don't have those resources. Or somewhere in the middle. But, you know, it's interesting because when you think about the strength that God gives us as a ministry to do things, uh, we do the things that God has called us to do because God has called us to do them, and he's opened a door of ministry to do them. So when I think about the things that we are able to accomplish as a church family, I realize we do the things that God has called us to do by his authority and given us the opportunity to do. We don't try to do things that he hasn't called us to do. I'll give you an example. Way back in the, gosh, it was 2004, 2005, when we first planted the church here in Passaic, we had actually been a church going back to 2003, but we came here in April 2004, and there were people among us that just thought that God had placed us across the street from the high school because that was a calling that we had to reach the high school. And there were a few people that really, really tried. I mean, they tried. They literally banged on doors. And the doors never opened. And some people said to me, well, why do you think God has placed us in front of the high school if it's not an open door? I said, could it be that it's more about us being a quarter mile from Route 21 so people can find us? 
You see, you don't want to assume that God has opened up the door. He never did open that door. But I want to say this. I'm very excited about this. And, and Pastor Sal and his wife Sharon are excited about it, too, is that when we do our Christmas play this year, we're going to be in the high school across the street. So God opened that door. But it wasn't a door of ministry. It wasn't a door that we thought or some people thought of in the beginning. And I never really felt it was. I, I, that really wasn't why we're here. I, I, it w- that would be a nice thing if God called us to do that. But he didn't. And there was a time where we d- had some su- success reaching out to the community as well with ESL classes. Pastor Kurt had that, headed up that initiative. And, and we were, uh, I guess, well over a year. We did a couple of semesters, and we were able to reach some people and do some good. But then it became obvious that God was closing that door that he had opened. You have to be sensitive in ministry to know when God is in something and when he's not. And that's hard because once we start something as human beings, we make the assumption that God would never shut that door again. Well, it's an open door. Yeah, he opens and he shuts. Say amen. He shuts and he opens. Say amen. You see, a door that may be shut right now may be open in a few weeks. And a door that's been open for years may shut in the next couple of months. You have to be okay with that. He's the one that decides that. You and I don't. There are churches out there running programs that are dead because they just can't get the memo. The door has shut. And we need to be careful about that. So looking at the things we put on our calendar. When I, about two months ago when we started to plan the, the calendar for the, for the fall, I looked at it and said, boy, this is going to be a busy couple of months. And I'm glad to say, coming to the end of October, I'm looking forward to having a little bit more time on my hands. Some of you as well, especially uh, Pastor Russ, who did a wonderful job leading the team to, to do the Pinewood Derby. I mean, he really put 110% into we give the glory to God. But as a result, our families and our children were blessed yesterday. God was clearly in that. He opened the door and he blessed us. And I am not so proud as to refuse to admit at times when we do something and it just is not happening. You know what? You just kill it. You just, you just say, you know what? It was a nice idea. We're not going to do it. And we've done that too. But the doors that God is opening to us as a ministry right now include missions trips again, which we're very excited about. There's a trip Pastor Joe is leading to India. Some of you are going on that trip. We're excited about that for the fall. That's another open door that was closed for a little while for a number of reasons, not the least of which was this crazy pandemic. That's opened up. There are opportunities that are opening up in local outreach. All, All the different outreaches we support, like Inspire Sports Camps. There's opportunities there. And you know, when you have an opportunity, you pray about it and you step forward. Well, listen, there are many opportunities here as well, as you well know. With our children, our children are getting older. That happens. Did you notice that? They get bigger. They grow out of their clothes. Don't buy expensive sneakers. Don't do it. Unless you have younger kids of the same gender, you know, you can pass them down. They grow out of these things. They grow up and that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, as a consequence, within the next couple of years, let's say five, within five years, we're going to have a very large youth group. We have sort of a smaller youth group now, but you know what? It's going to get larger. There's a door of opportunity opening right over here across the way, right across the river. In Wallington, uh, there's the, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's CBS. Do I got that right? I hope I do. Uh, Community Bible Study. And uh, it, it's an organization that a lot of you have been involved in. Some of, some of the people here are involved in, in leadership positions there. And it's independent of any church. And this particular 
uh, Bible study, which is going to be right over here in Wallington. We actually have the uh, flyer up on the board in the hallway over here. But if you need more information, you can see Pastor Raj. Uh, he's familiar with it. Uh, Laura Donna's sisters, uh, one of the leaders, Anna Maria. So we, we, we know the people. We know what they're doing. It's a good ministry. It's, it, we want to be supportive of it. But it's specifically for our youth. And it's a Friday night Bible study, not a ping pong tournament, okay? Not, not fun and games, although it can be fun to study God's word. It's an opportunity to study God's word systematically. So here's the thing. We're seeing an opportunity. We, we, we see an open door. We want to walk through that. So we're encouraging parents of teenage children to get their kids involved in that. We, we trust the people leading it, and it's right here. So why wouldn't we take advantage of that wonderful opportunity, that open door? See, that's what I'm saying. If you keep your eyes open, you'll see God will open a door. But here's the problem. I'm going to be blunt. Many times in Calvary Chapel, as a, as a group of churches, is more guilty than most, that if something starts and it's not Calvary Chapel, we dismiss it as not a door open to us. And we try to force our own door. So, oh, we're, we're not going to get behind that. We're going to create our own. We're going to reinvent the wheel. Why would we do that? God has opened this door. Let's walk through it. So I'm just giving you some very practical examples of how you can walk through open doors. And and listen, we're going to talk more about the church, but this is the practical exhortation this morning. Walk through the doors that God has opened for you, and we will walk through the doors together as a church that God has opened for us. Now, what they did as a church, the church in Philadelphia, is they did make the most of the opportunities that God had provided for them. And rather than relying on their own strength, they had little strength. Ever feel like you have little strength? Some of you guys getting older? Try to open up that peanut butter jar. Get one of your kids to do it. We're not always the strongest people we, you know, we once were. And one of the things that happens with church is we have a tendency to rely on our own strength. Here's the encouragement. Rely on God's strength. You don't have to be strong if you rely on God's strength. And by the way, the Bible tells us our strength is weakness compared to God's strength. So rely on God's strength. And they did. They relied on God's strength, not on their own weakness. That's another thing. Just always look to God's strength. Look to God to do the work. Well, they were faithful to God. They obeyed his word. And in addition to being one of only two of the seven churches that still exist today, they're one of only two churches that received no correction in the letter. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna was the persecuted church. Philadelphia was a good church, a church of love. A church that was balanced, not a huge church. But a church that was doing the things that God had called them to do such that he had nothing negative to say about them. It was all encouragement and comfort. And then he goes on to comfort this church in verses 9. Well, let's start in just verse 9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Clearly in this first century church, They were being persecuted by the members of the synagogue who were more political than religious. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan and says they claim to be Jews, but they're not. So this isn't about them being Jews. This is actually about them saying they were Jews, but they weren't. Have you ever met anyone that said they were religious or said they were spiritual, but at the end of the day, they're not? 
That's what they were contending with here. But Jesus comforts them because he promised them that they would be delivered from their enemies. They were reassured of Jesus' love for them, and their enemies would acknowledge Jesus' love for them. And then, in verse 10, they were promised that they would be delivered from the coming earthly tribulation. That means that God was not going to allow them, like he allowed Smyrna to be persecuted, he wasn't going to allow Philadelphia to be persecuted. Now, why would God allow one good church, like Smyrna, to go through persecution, and another good church, like Philadelphia, to avoid or not go through persecution? Well, I can't answer that question. That's why he's God, and we call him Lord. That's his decision. But it says this, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently... I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, there's clearly a reference to things in the future there, but let's keep it in the first century for now. Whatever was going to happen in the uh, Greco-Roman world, they would be exempt from experiencing. And I think there are a lot of Christians that look forward to being exempt from certain struggles and trials in this life. But remember, there's no guarantee. That is spoken to a specific church. I think is representative of a specific time in church history as well. But you could be of the church of Smyrna where the Lord comforts you in your persecution. If you are a member of the church in China right now, the underground church, or the church in Iran or North Korea, you would know something of being persecuted. But maybe we in America are more like Philadelphia and that God has kept us from some of those things. For what purpose? His purposes. And as long as we can, do, we can continue to do his purpose and fulfill that purpose as a church, we'll be kept from the tribulation until God decides we shouldn't be. So, you know, again, back to that open door. You, you can't decide for God what's going to happen in your future, individually or as a church. That is up to him. He has that authority. We trust him either way. But they were encouraged to continue to faithfully wait for his imminent return. And that is a very important focus in this letter, for he goes on to say, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. They knew it. They were very focused on it. And he reminds them of it. And I'm reminding you this morning that Jesus says, I am coming soon. And that that was 2000 years ago. Well, maybe not 2000, maybe closer to 1900 years ago. And he said, I'm coming soon. What's soon? I don't know, but I'll tell you what, sooner than the soon that they were talking about. Right? So hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, the crown is a symbol of the rewards that God gives us for going through difficult times, suffering, tribulation. And in this context, it's the crown that they had already received. But they were encouraged not to forfeit their rewards. Hold on to it. Don't forfeit the things that God has done in your life. Hold on to them. Wait for his return. And Jesus goes on to promise them that he will reward them should they overcome. Now, they were overcoming, but if they continued to overcome in the power of the Spirit, the way they had been, this is what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. And I'll just stop there. What does that mean? Well, he's writing to a church in a city that experienced constant tremors, earthquakes. Could you imagine living in a city like that. Maybe some of you lived on the West Coast or you lived in a part of the world where that happens frequently. 
One of the most encouraging things is to know that the ground you're standing on is not going to be shaken. And that's exactly how he speaks to them spiritually. That the ground, the spiritual ground they were standing on would not be shaken. God was going to put them in a place where they wouldn't be shaken. For after all, a pillar in God's temple would be permanent, unshakable, an unshakable fixture in God's presence. Basically, to people who never knew whether the ground under their feet was solid, he's saying spiritually, you're grounded, secure, and permanently promised my presence. Very important message and very uh, applicable to the people living in this city. Now, there is a security in his presence. And it's a security without the threat of separation or instability. For he goes on to say, never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, God's name, the name of the city, Jesus' name. Now, the name is both the character and reputation of an individual in the ancient cultures. So what we're seeing here is more than just, oh, you get a new name. Some of you would like to have a new name. Some of you have changed your names. Some of you go by a nickname or use your middle name because you don't like your first name. But I'll tell you this. We're all going to be given a new name. That is a a new nature, a new character. The character in the name of God, Jesus Christ, and the city of, of God and God's people called New Jerusalem, which we'll talk a lot about in future studies as we get to the end of the book of Revelation. So understand that. What he's saying, though, is that the members of this church belong to the Father. They belong to the Son. They would dwell with him forever. This is all about security in the presence of God for eternity. And we know this, that through Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Amen? So the reward is always Jesus. That never changes from letter to letter, from church to church. He who overcomes will receive a reward. What's the reward? It's Jesus. It's just spoken of in poetic language and symbolism, but it's always Jesus. He is our security in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, and his presence is our eternal reward. And so that's the letter to the church in Philadelphia. But, as is the case with all of these letters, this church represents a time in church history. I believe it represents the evangelical church movement that started in the 1700s and continues to this very day. We are, by definition, not a Catholic church, okay? We are not an Orthodox church. We are not even a Protestant church. We're not a Reformed church. And we've looked at those church movements. I said to you before that, if anything, we try to be an apostolic church, but actually, when it comes right down to it, we're an evangelical church. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the Church of Philadelphia is our model, is our example. We want to be just like this church. Why? Because that's the door that God has opened for us. That's the time in which we live. That's the movement of the Spirit that we were born out of as Calvary Chapel. Not just Calvary Chapel, North Jersey, but the Calvary Chapel movement that started in the mid-60s and continues to this day. Sadly, many who have been a part of this movement, and some which are still a part of this movement, have lost their way. They've started to become different about the way they do ministry. 
That's not necessarily bad or good. I'm just saying different. And as a result, we're seeing a change within the Calvary Chapel churches. But there is still a group of churches, a large group of churches within this movement, within this affiliation, including us, that stick to the principles of God's word and the principles of the Holy Spirit working in and through us that make us the kind of church we are. Are we better than those other churches? No, we're just different. Now, no point am I saying we're better. This is just who God has called us to be. This is the door that God has opened for us. And we walk through it. Oh, but I wish we were like this. Then walk through a different door in a different church. I really wish the pastor would wear a tie. There's other churches you can go to this morning. You'll get a bow tie if you really want. You're not going to get that here. We're who God has called us to be. Some of you guys are like, I'm so glad the pastor doesn't wear a tie. I'd hate to wear a tie on Sundays. Walk through that door with me. That's us. Now I'm being a little silly. There are more important things than what we look like. The evangelical church. This movement actually began in the early 18th century as a response to what was called enlightenment thinking. Enlightenment thinking came along and it started to, sort of started to explain away God. Oh, that's the way we used to think. Nowadays, we believe there might be a God, but they're more deists. They don't really believe that he wants a relationship, or they don't even believe there's a God. They started to look to science. And if you've been alive over the last three years, you know science is not always the answer. Actually, the Bible calls it science falsely so-called. So that was a reaction to Enlightenment thinking. The evangelistic or evangelical church was a response to this enlightenment thinking, to stay true to the principles of God's word when challenged by things like science, falsely so-called, and the culture of the day. The Wesleyan revival within the Church of England greatly influenced many solid believers during this era. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. They both ushered in what we refer to in this country as the first great awakening, a spiritual revival. And this revival movement continued into the 19th century with the second great awakening. Today, evangelical churches are distinguished from the generally more liberal Protestant churches because we are not Protestants, we are evangelicals. So that's just a little church history that I believe that church in Philadelphia in the first century represents, prophetically, if you will. Let's talk a little bit more about this time in church history. Interestingly, they were given complete and total authority, total authority, and they gave that authority to Jesus. They didn't take it for themselves. Jesus was given complete and total authority during this church era in the churches. They embraced the Protestant Bible as the authoritative and inerrant word of God. They embraced the cross of Christ as the only means for salvation and forgiveness of sins. No more sacraments, nothing else. Only the scriptures. They embraced the need to be born again through a personal conversion experience with Jesus Christ. They embraced having a personal relationship with God and living a life of discipleship. Does this sound familiar? I hope it does. It should. It's who we are. They embraced evangelism and missionary work as the great commission of the church. And that's why I say being an evangelical church 
is so vitally important to us. These are the real principles of what it means to be a church, for us especially. Now, as a church, the churches in this time period, which includes today, were given unprecedented opportunities to reach the world with the gospel. This is when missionary work actually began in the 1700s. Before that, it really wasn't the same thing. They were so busy walking through God's open doors, there were so many. And they recognized God's ability to exceed their greatest hopes. They were never powerful by the world's standards, yet always faithful to the word of God. They were motivated by God's word and lived lives of brotherly love. This describes the evangelical movement. And they have remained holy and true. In anticipation of Christ's return, that's who we are. They endured the enemies of God's grace patiently, and we certainly have within our movement. While never denying the name of Jesus, they have a perspective, I should say we have a perspective that awaits God's justice while secure in his love. We rely on God's deliverance in earthly tribulation and await the rapture of the church. For we believe that is a true event that's about to occur. Churches like this know that their reward is to spend eternity in God's presence. They're not looking for anything else. And by the way, if your eternal reward is to spend time in the presence of God for all eternity, wait, what do you do on a Sunday? You know, I'm going to say something that the Lord really laid on my heart yesterday. I didn't even want to hear it. But I'm driving in the car, coming home from the church after the event yesterday, and the Lord just started showing me something. If I were to say to you that there, there was a, a vaccine, some type of a inoculation that would keep you from worldliness, a pill you could take that would make you the right kind of Christian, would you take it? Well, those of you here this morning, you have. It's called coming to church. I'm going to say it. If you're not here every week, you need a boost. Once isn't going to get it done. Clearly, that vaccine doesn't work. But this will. You need to be vaxxed from the world. You need to be boosted every week. And can I say it this way? I'm using silly language, but I'm making my point, I hope. That when you miss a Sunday, listen, if you're sick, stay home. I want to say that again. By the way, we like to share, but not everything. But can I say this? We need to be here. I promise you, I know for a fact by experience and by teaching from God's word, that if you are in the house of the Lord every Sunday, oh, maybe you really want to go crazy and come out on a Wednesday, you're going to be shielded from the craziness of this world. So instead of walking around, can you believe this? It's so crazy. Look at the border. Can you believe this inflation? Oh, I go to the grocery store. I can't afford milk. Instead of that, you'll be like, praise you, Lord. Because being in God's presence now is what prepares you for being in God's presence for eternity. Think of it as rehearsal for heaven. I can tell you as a musician who does a lot of rehearsing, you miss a rehearsal, you know. You know. So let me say this to you. Going into this new year, you got a couple of months before the new year, let's all think about this together and be led of the Lord as he opens the door. How important is it to us as individuals to be a pillar in God's temple? So consistent 
that when you're not here, someone says, hey, where's Eddie Mack? He was taking a drink of his coffee, so I had to get him. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. So listen, this is who we want to be. But this church of the first century, and this time in church history, which again exists today, really, it really describes any church at any time in history, including today, that is a gospel church. Some churches have gospel in their name. Some churches call themselves a gospel church by definition. What is a gospel church? Well, it's like the Church of Philadelphia. It's like a church in that evangelical movement. They have an eternal perspective in the world. They see things properly. They're growing exponentially, in fact, despite their lack of worldly power, because their strength comes from God. They are as pure a church as could possibly be in this world, not because of themselves, but because of their faithfulness to God. And that's what will happen to you, by the way, if you make that commitment to being in God's presence on a consistent basis. Now listen, a church like this will paint a true picture of who Jesus is. Challenging the enemies of God's grace with his love. With his love. See what I said? With his love. Brotherly love. A church like this is obedient to his word, faithful to his name, and they have God as their only hope and reward. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about foolish virgin syndrome, which was Sardis, the church of Sardis. And as we look at this individually, forget about the churches for a minute, as individuals, a person who has the characteristics of this church can be described as having the wise virgin perspective. You remember it. I'm not going to read it again. You remember how there were five wise and five foolish virgins in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. And the thing about the wise virgins is they brought oil in their lamp. They were prepared because they knew they needed more than just their lamp. The foolish virgins didn't get that memo. Oil is a type or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. What it means is that we as Christians need to be relying on God's Holy Spirit, prepared for the bridegroom to return. And if you are such a person as this, if you can be described as the five wise virgins, you will be ready when the Lord returns. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father. We thank you. You are a good and gracious God. You challenge us. You encourage us. You never condemn us. Oh, Lord God, but sometimes you correct us. I pray that if we needed to receive some correction today, if maybe we've had a more casual approach to being in your presence, maybe when we're in your presence or even just getting here on a Sunday, or maybe being on time, Whatever it is that we need to be challenged with, may we walk through that open door. You've given us an open door here. We open our door at 9 o'clock. Well, it's open before that, actually. And we have an opportunity here. And, Lord, we want to make the most of that opportunity that you've given us. And so we come together to praise, to worship. We come together as a family to fellowship, to spend time together, to instruct our children, to encourage them. We come together to be in your word, yes, but we also come together to serve one another, to love one another, to reach out beyond our doors in the community and beyond our community. Lord, we know none of that is even possible if not for your strength. Oh Lord, may we continue to be a gospel church, evangelical in description, 
like the church of Philadelphia. And may we be wise and prepared for the day that you return for us, for you told us you're coming soon. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.